Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, if you're looking for a church home, we invite you to check out Calvary. You can find information at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, in today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series on the church with part three of a message entitled People of Faith taken from Hebrews 11 verses 5 through 7. Let's listen together. Beginning with Adam and Eve, God has been calling out a people for himself from the very beginning of time. These people are the church in the world, church with a capital C, expressed today in local churches with a small letter C, congregations like this all over the world who are preaching the truth of the gospel. We have emphasized two important truths, two key truths that we want to keep ever before us through this series of messages on the church of Christ. The first one is this, God's purpose for mankind is to raise up a worshiping community, people who will live for his honor and for his glory. Those people have looked different through time. What began with Adam and Eve as a family grew into a nation of people who failed to be the people of God as he desired for them to be, a nation that fell into idolatry not once or twice, but repeatedly. And so God sends his son Jesus Christ to be the perfect Israel, to be the perfect uh, man of God, people of God. And we are his followers today in local churches. But God's purpose has been to have a worshiping community in the world. Now the second truth is this. The true church of Christ today is comprised only of those who have put faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. The implication of that and the truth of that is this, that there are so-called churches of many brands, of many faith traditions all over this country, all over this city, all over the world that call themselves the people of God. But it's only those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. It's only those who have been born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, that are truly the people of God. That means even in conservative Baptist churches, even in a place like this, there is a line drawn through that congregation of those who truly have put their faith and trust in Christ and those who have not. Those who maybe walked an aisle, those who maybe prayed a prayer, those who maybe lifted a hand, those who maybe even were baptized. 
uh, but in reality have never trusted Christ as Savior. We hope and pray there's no one like that here today. We are in the process of this very day of giving instruction to uh, some young people and, and uh, even one or two adults uh, in our church uh, who are preparing to be baptized to publicly confess their faith in Christ two weeks from today. And they are receiving instruction, even as while we are here, to be sure that they know Christ as Savior. So in this process of studying the church, the church of Christ, not the denomination, but the true church of Christ, we've come to Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. Since faith is the dividing line, uh, between people in this world, of those who know Christ and those who do not, of those who are truly a part of his church and of those who are not, we need to see and examine what real faith looks like. So Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter of the Bible, is the best place to do that. We have 16 names uh, in this chapter. Uh, Psalm 2 or 3 mentioned a little more extensively. Others mentioned in a verse or two, some only by name. But these are people who demonstrate faith. They are not the only people who demonstrated faith in the Bible. There are many others. Many great heroes of the faith are left out. Some of them are mentioned here, and it's rather surprising to find that they are. They are not necessarily all people that maybe we would consider the people be people of great faith. But then again, that's why God didn't ask your input on writing the Bible. God is the author of it, so we go with what he gave us. Amen? I gave you a working definition of faith, and it is this. Faith is trust which produces obedience. If it doesn't produce obedience, it's not real faith. You can walk an aisle, lift a hand, pray a prayer, and it not be real if it doesn't produce change in your life, if it doesn't produce love for God and obedience to Him. Now, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about faith as far as the quantity of faith, how much faith do you have, how little faith do you have. The Bible doesn't talk about that hardly ever. But it does talk about the quality or the character of your faith. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is so helpful in doing. By giving us the stories of these people, we see what true faith looks like in practice. We see the character of it. Now, we spent two weeks talking about Abel, a man who just takes up five or six verses in the Bible early in the story in Genesis chapter 4 or 3. And it's a very brief story, a man by the name of Abel. But we find that Abel was an example of faith worshiping. Faith worships. We now turn our attention to the next two men listed in Hebrews 11. And their names are Enoch and Noah. Now very easily, we could spend a couple of weeks on each of these guys also, or even longer. But if we do that, we would never make it through Hebrews chapter 11. 
And this is just one phase of our study of the Church of Christ. So we will mention them uh, together today, abbreviate their stories, and see what they say to us. Now, Enoch and Noah are examples of faith walking and faith working. Enoch walked with God. By the way, so did Noah. And Noah worked for God. And no doubt, so did Enoch. Faith walking and faith working. We will abbreviate their stories. About four or five years ago, I preached, we were preaching through the first part of Genesis, and I preached two outstanding messages on these two men. Well, thank you, Jamie. It was a joke. I did preach two sermons on these men, but they were so outstanding you don't remember it no more than nothing. If you want to know more about these men, maybe we can find that recording if you're so inclined. But today we're going to abbreviate their story by reading what Hebrews chapter 11 has to say about them. Brock, can I get you to give me just a little more volume, please? I'm struggling with my voice this morning. Verse 5, Hebrews 11. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Two very unique men in the Bible. They both walked with the Lord in days of increasing darkness. It's easy for us to think of them living in very primitive, uncivilized times, but that was not the case at all. They lived in a time of great advancement and enlightenment in a world that intellectually very possibly even surpassed our day today. But it was a dark world because of the growing presence and prevalence of sin. It was much like today in this respect. When the Bible says at the end of time, men will be ever learning but unable to come to a knowledge of the truth, that was exactly what it was like in Enoch and Noah's day. Ever learning, but unable to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, you know the story of Enoch. He was a unique man because he, along with another man, never experienced death as we know it. Who was that other man? Elijah. Enoch and Elijah left this life 
went to heaven, went to glory, went to be with the Lord without ever passing through death's doorway. They were just caught up to be with the Lord. I, I like what one country evangelist said one time about Enoch when he was reading about Enoch's story in the book of Genesis. He said, and Enoch walked with God, and he walked with God for so long, so faithfully. One day the Lord said to him, well, Enoch, why don't you go ahead and just come home with me? It's closer there than it is to go back to your house anyway. So I don't know how it happened, but like Elijah, he was taken out of this life. Some say because of that, when Revelation chapter 11 talks about there being two witnesses who are going to preach and prophesy at the end of time and are going to be stoned to death on the streets for their faithfulness in preaching the gospel and how they will lie there dead in the street for some three days, but then they will be resurrected, that these two witnesses are none other than Enoch and Elijah because they never died the first time they lived. And the Bible says in Hebrews, it is appointed unto man once to die. So perhaps it's Enoch and Elijah that will return to be preachers of righteousness even in our lifetime. So Enoch was a very unique man. Noah was a unique man. I mean, after all, he was Noah, right? 120 years, he worked to build a great big boat. A boat that was going to save himself. It was going to save Mrs. Noah. It was going to save their three sons and their three daughters-in-law. No doubt he was ridiculed every day for those 120 years, but still he labored on. This is what Jesus had to say about Noah in Matthew 24. Listen to the words of Jesus. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Now, what he's talking about is the end of the age when Jesus is going to come back to this world, okay? He's talking about the second coming. Nobody knows that day or that hour, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, the Father only knows. For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware until it was too late. They were much like our neighbors, our family members perhaps, people all around us, unaware and uncaring about the second coming of the Lord until it was too late and they get swept away in the flood of God's wrath. It was a time of business as usual. Listen to this description. I believe it's very accurate. They were eating and drinking nothing wrong with that. Marrying and giving in marriage, nothing wrong with that. 
They were buying and selling and continuing in all the usual activities of human life. Children went to school each day. Businessmen made deals. Teachers taught. Doctors dispensed healing. Farmers tended their crops. They evidently paid no attention to crazy Noah and the big boat he was building in his backyard. Maybe he was regarded as a local wacko whose oddities were tolerated and made the butt of cocktail hour humor. As he warned them of impending judgment, they paid him no mind whatsoever. But at last the day came when Noah entered the ark. The rains came down and the flood came up. I'm sure in that day, the people started beating on the door, but it was too late. Scripture says they were unaware. Unaware. By the way, it's a shame that that story of Noah is so often relegated to a child's story. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we see a cartoon like Noah and a bunch of animals standing on the ark looking out and all of them have some kind of silly grins on their faces. It is a gruesome story. It is a story of hard work with no fruit from his preaching. A story about the death of civilization of billions of people, of a world perhaps more populated even than our world today. But in all of that darkness, it is a story of grace, amen? A story of God's grace. By the way, have any of you ever been to Williamstown, Kentucky to see a replica of the ark? Anybody been there to see that? Three, maybe four people here. Can we put that picture on the screen? Can you believe that? It is a replica of the ark. And though we don't have the details, really, of, of what it was shaped like, you know, it might have been more of a rectangular coffin-looking thing. I, we don't know. But, but that is, dimension-wise, the size of Noah's ark. Can you imagine building that? Just four men, Noah and his boys. No power tools or heavy equipment. Nothing but ridicule from the people all around you. That is an example of faith working. Okay, so Enoch and Noah, no wonder they're mentioned in the faith chapter of God's Word. Amen? No wonder. Two very unique men of faith. But here's what I want to focus on in the remainder of our time today. This is the transferable truth. This is the, the truth of Enoch and Noah's day. That is still a truth for us to act on and do something about today. It's transferable. It wasn't just for them in their time. It is for us today. And the truth is this, both of these men 
walked with God. Are you? Both of these men walked with God. Are you walking with God? Now, sometimes we look back to these characters and we say, well, they had such an advantage over us because oftentimes maybe God spoke to them in a very literal way. Maybe God even appeared to them or through an angel communicated with them and and we just don't hear that happening today. But I want to say we have so many more advantages today. We have the Word of God in its completed form that includes all their stories and explanations. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and we can see God's faithfulness through the Word. We have the presence of the indwelling Spirit who is in all of our lives if we are true believers of Christ. God is not just out there somewhere. God is within us right here. We have so many advantages today uh, that, that walking with Christ, it is not an excuse that we can offer up that these men had advantages that we don't have. This is a transferable concept. These men walked with God, and we need to be walking with God also. Genesis 5.24 says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. It does not mean that he did not exist. It means he was there one minute, he was gone the next. Now you see him, now you don't. The very next verse in, in uh, Hebrews 11, after talking or mentioning Enoch, said that he had God's approval, that he pleased God, and that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. No matter what you sacrifice, no matter what you do with your life, anything apart from faith will not be pleasing unto the Lord. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, 9, and 22, we read this about Noah. But Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah walked with God. He did all that God commanded him. Why? Because trust produces obedience. And Noah's trust in the Lord produced obedience in his life. He did all that God had commanded him. Now in Hebrews 11, the text talks about Noah's reverent fear towards God. And through his obedience, he condemned the world. Now what does that mean? It does not mean that as he preached, that as they reviled him and mocked him, that he yelled at them, you're all going to go to hell. That's not what it means that he condemned the world in that way. He condemned the world by his obedience. His walk with God, his faithful service to God, his loyalty to God, just by the nature of what obedience looks like in a Christian's life, it throws a light on others that exposes them and exposes their sin. Are you living in such a way that your life exposes the sin of people around you? 
It should. It should. You should be a light to them. You should be a witness to them. Through you, they should be pointed to Christ. So what does it mean to walk with God like Enoch and Noah? Let me give you another working definition. A definition for the idea of walk. When you read this in the Bible, that somebody walked with God. And it's talking about their walk and their service to God. Here's a definition that possibly you've never heard. This kind of walk is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Eugene Peterson, who gave to us the message, it is a paraphrase of Scripture, a faithful servant and pastor of the Lord, author of a number of books, wrote a book on the topic of discipleship by that title, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Does that describe your walk with God? We're going to baptize some young people in a couple of weeks that are beginning an obedient walk with the Lord. It hasn't been long for them yet. We pray that it will be a long obedience in the same direction. That statement implies three things. Three things. First of all, it implies that there is a destination. A walk with Christ means there is a destination. I mean, that makes sense, does it not? It makes sense. We believe that the destination ultimately is heaven. It is a heavenly home that we are walking with Christ towards our heavenly home. But it's also a nearer destination than that. That's the final destination. But in the meantime, it is Christ-likeness, conformity to Jesus Christ in this life. We are becoming more like Christ. We are like little Christ, like what the word Christian means. We resemble Jesus in our way of living, in our manner of speaking, in the way that we deal with life's challenges, Christ's likeness that ultimately will lead us to our heavenly home. There is a destination implied in this idea of walking with God. It's going somewhere. But secondly, if there is a destination, there is a direction in which you walk. A direction in which you walk. Next Sunday, Lord willing, several of our praise team, Tony and I, about a dozen of us all together, are going to begin a trip after services to Nashville, Tennessee, to a conference and an, op- an opportunity we have to, to grow in our understanding of worship and to be strengthened in uh, that thing of, of leading worship in the Lord's church. Nashville, Tennessee is a long ways from here. And it is east. 
the def- destination is Nashville. To get to Nashville, you have to go the right direction. Does that make sense? Now, you can head off west if you want to. You can head off north or south if you want to. But sooner or later, you're going to have to turn and go east for a good five or 600 miles to get to the destination. The destination determines the direction. Now, follow me here and don't miss what I'm about to say. If your destination is heaven, if your destination in the meantime is to become like Christ, which is why God saved you, then there is a direction you've got to walk. Your steps have to be ordered by the Lord. You have to walk in His way. And it never ceases to amaze me how many people think that they can make a profession of faith and experience in time. And then in the meantime, because they have their eternity secured and all sewn up and all nailed down and however you want to describe it, that they can just wander around and live like they want to in this life. And when life is over, expect to end up in heaven. I'm going to tell you, that is Satan's deception. Yeah, do you hear that, Brock? I'm getting a roar up here. Maybe it's the speaker. Okay, thank you. That's the devil's deception. Because to end up with the Lord, you've got to walk with the Lord. To get to the right destination, you've got to go the right direction. And not only is the direction identified by the Lord, but add an S to that, the directions for how to live also come from the Lord. They come from His Word. You want to know you're going to end up in heaven? You want to know you're going to be like Christ and your life is going to be productive and you're going to be a person of faith and you're going to please God with your life? You need to follow the directions. You need to move in the direction of the destination. But it also implies a third thing. It implies dependability. Dependability. Or in other words, consistency. It is a long walk, a long obedience in the same direction. Today we live in a microwave world. Would you agree with that? Everything is short. Everything is quick. If it takes more than about two minutes, we usually bail on it, okay? We're used to everything happening very quickly. I heard a preacher one time talk about that, and he just wore this example out. He said, we have too many Christians who are trying to have microwave maturity when real maturity comes by the crock pot. He, needs, he says we need to be crock pot Christians. I'm gonna tell you, I know some crack pot Christians. Don't you? I even know one or two of them. It's pretty close. Pretty close around. I'm not going to point any fingers or look too long in any one direction, Justin. You wouldn't either, would you? But we need to be crockpot Christian. We need to realize this is the long haul, that you can't microwave Christ-likeness. 
You can't push it for 15 seconds or, or, or whatever and expect to come out like Jesus. But somehow it's the long, slow heat that tenderizes the hardness of our hearts and the selfishness of our ways that blends the flavors of our experiences together that it all makes sense and it all glorifies God and it's a pleasing to, to everyone. It requires dependability, consistency. The Bible calls it steadfastness. It's not an on-again, off-again walk. It's not now I do and now I don't. It's, it's a journey, not just an experience. Psalm 1, the, the collection of 150 psalms begins with a verse that I think says almost everything about what psalms, the whole collection, is all about. It says, blessed or happy, joyful is the person that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, that does not stand in the way of sinners, that does not sit in the seat of the scorners. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season, and his leaf will not wither. Whatever he does will prosper. But notice those three postures of verse 1. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scorners. Have you ever noticed that in your walk with God, as you are making progress, as you are walking forward with the Lord, sometimes we grow weary, we grow discouraged, sometimes we stop our walk. We've been listening to ungodly people and their advice so long, it's beginning to rub off on us. And then we stop walking with God somewhere along the way because we're listening too much to the world and their counsel. And then we begin to mix among sinful people. That's where our identity is found more standing with sinners instead of walking with God. And then if we do that long enough, guess what? You're not going to be walking. You're not even going to be standing. You're going to be sitting. And you're going to sit down and you're going to become a scorner, a critic. Listening to the world. Letting the world shape you. Letting the world influence you too much will stop you in your walk with God. You'll not be walking, you'll be standing. Sooner or later, you'll be sitting and you'll be a critic. I want to tell you, there are people all over northwest Arkansas, all over this state, all over America that used to say they loved God, that used to walk with God, that used to live for God, that used to love his church, that used to be faithful to fellowship with his people. But somewhere along the way, they quit walking with God. They started standing with sinners. And now you can't get them to darken the door of the Lord's church because they've become the critic, the scorner. All they do is criticize the things of God. So to walk with God is a long obedience in the same direction. It suggests a destination, 
it also suggests a direction and it suggests to us dependability. You got to be consistent. Now, in the short time we have left, can I just let you look at two passages with me? Turn over to the book of Colossians chapter 2. I just want to make a couple of observations. We're not going to expound on these verses, but I want you to see with your own eyes what it looks like, okay? Colossians chapter 2, it's the passage that we began our service with here today. I remember being a college student at Central Baptist College in Conway, Arkansas, before Tony and I were even married many years ago. And I was struggling in, in my walk as a young preacher boy. And uh, there was a, an older uh, student, and he is now with the Lord, but he was from the state of Washington. His name was Tom Warner. Tom's younger brother, Kevin, is still a friend of mine. He's still faithfully serving the Lord in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I asked him, Tom had a, an extraordinary walk with God. And I, I was asking him, Tom, what help me here? Can you give me some counsel or advice about my walk with God? And he, I, I remember where we were standing in the old chapel of Old Main that is no longer even in existence. I can, I can take you right to where it took place if that building was still there. When he opened his Bible to Colossians chapter 2 and he read these two verses to me. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. And he looked at me and he said, Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? And I said, Yes. And he said, listen to what it says. So walk in him. Rooted, built up in him. Established in the faith. Just as you were taught. Abounding in thanksgiving. He said, that is the challenge of the Christian life. It's not enough just to receive Christ. It's not enough just to say you believe in Christ. The Christian life involves not just a decision. It involves a walk. If you have received the Christ the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice how he describes, how the apostle describes that walk and how he describes what it looks like. He says, first of all, it is rooted. That means it is, it's caused to take root and to grow. If something is going to grow and produce fruit, it's got to take root. Amen? It makes sense. We need to be rooted in the Lord and built up. The idea here is to be built upon as a spiritual house. We're studying on Wednesday night, 1 Peter, and it talks there in chapter 2 how that Jesus is the living stone, but we are like living stones. And along with him, we are being built up into a spiritual house. And 1 Corinthians 3 says he is the foundation, and we are those living stones. So we are rooted, we are built up into a spiritual structure. Then he said established. That means constant and unwavering, not on a shaky foundation, not wobbly, but established, firm, and secure. And then he used the word abounding. That means over and above, abundant. Now notice the prepositions. Rooted where? In him, in Jesus. 
Not rooted in this world. Not rooted in vain philosophy. Not rooted in the, in the ideas of mankind. But rooted in Jesus. Built up. In what? In whom? In Him. In Jesus. Rooted and built up in Him. Established. Where does the preposition go here? Established in the faith. That means you've got to know what the Word teaches. If you're going to walk with the Lord, you've got to be a student of God's Word. Established in the faith. Constant and unwavering. Abounding. But abounding in what? Abounding in thanksgiving, that means living a joyful life, overflowing with thanks and worship and praise to the one who has given you this life. That's what it means to walk in the Lord. Rooted in Him, built up in Him, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. Now turn over to the book of Ephesians. Just a couple of pages back to your left. Ephesians chapter 5. By the way, if we had time, we would go to the book of Galatians and find there about our walk with the Lord is a description. He teaches us to walk in the Spirit. And he says a lot of things about walking in the Spirit. But when we are walking with the Lord, we have to be rooted in Him, built up in Him, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving and worship, walking in the Spirit. And then Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 refers to it by three other words, and we'll close. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So walking with the Lord is to walk in love. Walk in love. What is the metaphor? What is the example? Who does he compare this to? Walk in love as what? As Christ loved us. How did Christ love you? Exactly, Bob. He didn't just send you some kind of warm fuzzy or a bunch of hearts on a text message or something on Facebook that made you all feel goosey inside. That's not how he loved you. He loved you in the most tangible, unselfish way you could ever be loved. He loved you like no other person will ever love you. He loved you as your wife is not capable of loving you. He loved you as your husband could never fully love you. He loved you like no parent or grandparent could ever love you. He loved you like even your favorite puppy dog who wants to lick you in the face all the time is capable of loving you. He loved you by giving his own life. So if you're going to walk with the Lord, what have you got to do? You've got to walk in love 
as Christ walked in love. What does that mean? That means you and me sacrificing ourselves for one another. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's a message that will empty the house in today's church world. A message of sacrifice. After all, today's church life is all about what's in it for me. And the first time somebody looks at me wrong or offends me or, God forbids, gets my spot on the pew on Sunday morning, I'm heading somewhere else. Love, walk in love as Christ gave himself for you. So it's not only walk in love. Look down at verse 8. At one time, he says, you were darkness. You weren't just in the darkness. You were darkness. You were once a black hole of sin, soaking up all the light around you. But now you are light in the Lord. So what are we to do? Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That the first consideration of walking in the light is constantly and daily asking the question, Lord, what is pleasing to you? And what would you have me to do today? Walk as children of light. Now skip down to verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom. Walk in Wisdom. No longer do you and I have the excuse of saying we don't know the will of God. We don't know what's right or wrong. Lord, I'm just ignorant about all that, so excuse how I live. If you are a child of God, you have the Spirit of God in your heart. And there is no excuse for often what we would just say, I didn't know any better. Walk in wisdom. Seek the Lord's direction. So I leave you with this. Is your faith a trust that produces obedience? What step of obedience do you need to take today? Do you have a worshiping, walking, working, faith? Is your faith making a difference in how you live? Can your life be described as a long obedience in the same direction? That's what walking with God is all about. Remember the old hymn? When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, What a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. 
trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Then, in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet, or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sins we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, thank you for the example of Enoch and Noah, two men who lived in very dark, dark days, but who stand out as a bright, shining light in the darkness. Thank you for their faith. Thank you for their walk. Thank you for their work. May they be models and examples to us every day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.